Fire Corporation of California. Uh, Ms. Berzon. Mr. Chief Justice, I may please the court. The 1980 ERISA amendments set up a complicated, complex scheme for assuring the long-run stability of multi-employer plans, pension plans, when employers, for many perfectly valid reasons, uh, legal reasons, cease making contributions to the plans. That scheme requires that some, but not all, withdrawal employers make withdrawal liability payments uh, in amounts that are dictated by the statute under a periodic payment scheme that can extend for as long as 20 years, uh, and that is also largely dictated by the statute. The question before the court in this case is when a cause of action to collect one or more of those unpaid uh, withdrawal liability payments accrues under the 1980 Act. The answer to that question, in our view, is rather simple and straightforward, uh, and it depends on two fundamental principles of statute of limitations law. The first, uh, and on this point I don't think there's any dispute among the parties, is that uh, ordinarily um, a limitations period runs from when a cause of action accrues, and in this statute that's made quite explicit by 1451A, uh, and that means when the plaintiff can first file a lawsuit, uh, not before. Uh, the statute here so states in 1451A that the, there is a cause of action, um, in 1451F, I'm sorry, that the limitations period runs from when the cause of action arose. The second principle, and here the consensus among the parties, I think, somewhat collapses, uh, is that a plaintiff's right to file suit uh, ordinarily is triggered by some breach of duty by the potential defendant, um, as defined by the the, the relevant legal rules. Here, that's the 1980 Act, uh, and the rules that it sets up for determining uh, when the defendant, potential defendant, the employer in this case, uh, is required to make payments. So unless one knows when the uh, employer has breached a legal obligation, one really can't make a sensible decision about when the statute of limitations starts to run. That is, there has to be a situation in which a court could issue a corrective order in favor of the plaintiff and against the defendant in order for a cause of action to accrue. So the limitations decision is really the flip side of um, a set of understandings about what obligations, duties, and rights the statute sets up to begin with and can't be looked at in isolation. Does this interest run on withdrawal liability? Um, interest runs on withdrawal liability payments, um, but in a, uh, an odd way that descri- was described by this court in Schlitz. Um, that is, once the demand has been made, uh, once there's been an assessment and a demand and a stated period in which the payments have to be made, then interest runs on payments, any so payments that are not made. interest not run from the date of withdrawal? It doesn't run from the date of withdrawal, and if the fund uh, does not uh, assess the withdrawal for some period of time, it runs only uh, as described by this court in Schlitz, uh, as if the payment was made on the first day of the date following withdrawal, no matter when they're actually made, uh, even, if some, even if the demand isn't to make them sometime, until sometime later. So, to apply these general principles to this case, uh, there are really three factors um, that are the most important. Um, the first is that the withdrawal itself uh, is not a violation of any legal obligation. Uh, ceasing to make contributions is not the violation of any legal contr- uh, obligation. Uh, and that the date of withdrawal is often determined after the fact by a set of events that occur after what is later decided to be the date of withdrawal. So the date of withdrawal is really a datum in a bunch of calculations uh, and not a date on which an employer is supposed to do anything. 
And what that means for purposes of the limitations inquiry here is that if the fund had tried to sue the, the employer on the date of withdrawal, uh, they would have been summarily dismissed uh, from their lawsuit because no uh, demand had been made for payment uh, and the employer had no obligation to pay anything. Um, the second uh, critical factor is that the employer does violate the statute uh, once it fails to pay uh, any withdrawal liability payment on the schedule that is set by the fund uh, in the demand letter, again, largely prescribed by the statute. That is the schedule and the amount both. So what we have here is sort of like a any bill, like a telephone or a credit card or a um, legal bill or a hospital bill uh, in which uh, there uh, is a liability that is incurred regarding facts that occur on a certain date, but until you get a bill that requires you to make a payment, uh, there's no obligation to pay, uh, no obligation that has been breached, uh, and no potential lawsuit uh, until that date. Um, and this rule uh, is a rule that, although the employer uh, in this case seems to take issue with it, is one that has been understood by hundreds of courts uh, over uh, hundreds of years, uh, including this court in a series of cases, including Rawlings versus Ray and others. That is, that ordinarily, when you're dealing with a debt, um, a cause of action accrues on the date that um, there is an obligation to pay the debt. Uh, and so under your view, I mean, e there would be a separate cause of action for each installment payment. Well, that's correct. Um, as well, um, although it was the third point that I was going to make. Uh, and, and that, that means that, in theory, it could continue on for 26 years or so. There are two things to be said about that. One is that uh, the reason, of course, why uh, it is possible that there could be suits for failure to pay, mm -hmm. make payments for a long period is because statute, Congress allowed a long period in which these payments to be made. In other words, Congress could have uh, required that the payment be made up front, but in fact, uh, and largely for the benefit of employers, and so as not to require them to make huge payments. Um, and I suppose if there's an early default, the plan sponsor could accelerate the balance? Correct. The, this um, provision has an express permissive acceleration clause, uh, which says that the plan sponsor may accelerate uh, upon a default as defined in the statute. The statute defines default in a particular way so that there needs to be a notice first of delinquency and then 60 days from that notice before a default can be declared. But so under your theory, the statute of limitations in this case would have started to run six years after the non-payment of the first installment? On the first installment um, and on each installment as it came due because the debt was not in fact accelerated and because of the additional fact that under the uh, more specific aspects of the statutory scheme, it actually could not have been accelerated because uh, although, as I said before, there is a permissive acceleration clause, it was not operative during the relevant periods in this case. And it wasn't operative because, first, it was too early. That is, the 60 days had not run at any period of time outside. First on, you keep mentioning the 60 days, but as I understand it, that's, that has never been passed on by any court. I mean, we have a decision from the Court of Appeals that we are reviewing that puts you out of the ballpark entirely because it dates the time from the withdrawal. That's correct. The, the, the argument that you made in your brief about the 60-day period, as I understand it, was not 
passed on by any court below. So you may be wrong or you may be right about it, but you are asking us to take a first view of that question, which ordinarily we don't. Let me see if I can understand. There are two different um, time or issues that you might be referring to. One is the question which, while not passed on by the court below because of the view it took that the date runs from withdrawal, has been addressed by other courts of appeals, that is by the Third Circuit and by the Seventh Circuit, which is a a purely legal issue, and that is um, if one agrees that the limitations period runs from missed payments, not from the date of withdrawals, does it run uh, as it would under the common law uh, with respect to installment payments generally? But why should we reach that question when the court we're reviewing hasn't reached it. We don't know what position they would take if they hadn't gotten the first thing wrong, if they hadn't used the withdrawal date. And you're arguing that's your basic proposition. If the Court of Appeals is right about that, that's the end of the case. If they're wrong about that, then there are further issues that other Courts of Appeals have addressed, but this one never reached. That's true. I would argue that um, this is an area in which some guidance and certainty uh, is of some use uh, to the practitioners and to the funds. Um, And there is, I would say, the issue is certainly presented by the facts of the case. And the overall issue of when the statute of limitations runs or begins to run and in what manner uh, is presented by the case. But if you're right about the 60 days, so your whole thing would be timely, this other question about each installment is academic in your case because it wouldn't matter. It's that, the whole thing would be time. If, then I, I think that you are assuming a second issue other than the, than the time by, by than the um, periodic payment by periodic payment issue, and that is whether or not um, the first payment in the this lawsuit was timely with respect to the first payment. And we do argue uh, that it was timely with respect to the first payment. Yes, and if you're right about that, that the rest of it doesn't matter because you're in under the wire. That's true. There is some dispute uh, as to whether that's the case. And, the, uh, and if you accept our position that even as to the first mispayment, the suit was timely because the earliest that we could have required it to be paid uh, was at the end of a 60-day period from the demand. Yeah, um, that's, that's something that that you have urged and that has not been passed on by any other court. So I understand that the first question is certainly before us, but I don't understand that anything else is because it hasn't, we would be acting as a court of first view, not a court of review. But that is separate from the issue of whether we necessarily prevail without deciding that question. And the answer is we do not necessarily prevail um, because of the schedule here, and perhaps I can clarify that. We um, filed suit here on February 9th, 1993. That was within um, the six-year period from the date on which the demand letter required the entire withdrawal liability to be paid if the employer so choose, chose under the prepayment option. It was within six years of the date in which we understand the statute to have permitted the first payment to have been required, also 60 days. But the demand letter actually said February 1st, 1987. So the only argument on which we possibly do not prevail on the entire debt, and here we're talking about a difference of $345, um, is if one views the lawsuit as not timely from 
the date of the first missed payment because we said in our demand letter that it was due on February 1st, although in our view that was a legal error. Actually, it was due on February 10th, if that's at all clarifying. Uh, so there are, there are views of this case on which it, it does matter um, whether the limitations period runs on a installment-by-installment installment basis and other views on which it doesn't matter. But if you're right about even the first payment, that, that you are timely, then why should we get to the question of installment or not? Well, well if I'm right uh, on the first payment being timely, then you don't need to. I'm saying that's in some dispute. That, that question is in some dispute. Um, if I can go briefly to what I understand uh, the employer... Am I correct in, in, in understanding that the option that you think is correct is not any of the four that you listed in your cert petition? Because you said your, your first is withdrawal date, second date when the payment becomes overdue, you're not relying on that. Then for each payment due on the date the payment becomes overdue, unless the plan sponsor elects to invoke the statutory provision on acceleration or some other date, it's some other date you think is right, is when the No, actually, we, we believe that it is for each payment due on the date that the payment becomes overdue, unless the plan sponsor elects to and, invoke... But when does it become overdue? When it was not paid or when you made a, a, a further demand? When it was not paid is when that particular payment is not due. Then, but you're, then you're not in time for the first payment. Uh... I, I, I sort of hate to get sidetracked on it because it's a $345 problem, right. but we would maintain um, and do in the briefs that there is a view of the statute on which we were timely with respect to the, to the first payment. But the, the view of the statute is it did not, you did, could not have sued on the date it became overdue. It. You, didn't, you couldn't have no, sued the view of the statute is that the statute required us to wait 60 days to collect the first missed payment, and that when we said that it was due on February 1st, we, we were in error. It couldn't have been that date. It really had to be February 10th. But was it not overdue on the first date? No, we would maintain on that view that it couldn't have been overdue. It was not overdue until 60 days after the date you were, the it was demand. supposed to have been made. That's correct. And that is the view on which uh, every, we are timely with respect to the, uh, every, each and every payment. But as I say, that is really in some ways the least important problem here because um, well, maybe it isn't important in this case, but you're saying there's certainty in the law is some importance to people who practice in this area. Right, exactly. Um, and, and if you were to conclude that we were right about that, then you really wouldn't have to decide the payment-by-payment payment issue. Um, and if you were not, uh, then you would have to go on to uh, decide whether, uh, although the first mispayment had let, had was gone, every other payment uh, was within the time period, as any installment contract lawyer would you know, quickly uh, conclude. Um, I want to just very briefly, um, before reserving the rest of my time, to comment on um, one issue that the employer here has uh, harped on quite frequently, and that is the contention that, uh, on our view of the with statute, that is, that it can, the limitations period cannot possibly run from the date of withdrawal, that there's some fundamental problem because then we are, um, we can indefinitely delay assessment, and uh, the plain answer to that is that Congress did deal with that problem. It dealt with, saw the timeliness issues here as two different ones, one dealing with the timeliness of the demand and one dealing with the timeliness of the lawsuit. Uh, with respect to the timeliness of the demand, the statute specifically provides that it has to be done as soon as practicable. Uh, that is an enforceable provision of the statute like any other provision of the statute um, and does not at all lead to the kinds of problems that the employer is suggesting. In, in this case, in the complaint, didn't you ask to accelerate the entire 
Matt? Uh, we, in the alternative, um, there were... Isn't that amount, amount to an election of the option? To, um, maybe that's the, not going to bar you anyway, but... I, it doesn't seem to me to amount to the election of the option for two reasons. First, because it was a fourth cause of action, which was simply for all the, the missed payments uh, and, and a future injunction. And secondly, because it was later um, in interrogatories in the case, which are not in the record before the court, agreed that, in fact, that acceleration was improper. It was improper, both because it was too early um, and because um, there was a pending arbitration in the case. Uh, and under the PPGC's rules, you cannot accelerate while there's a pending arbitration. So even if one viewed the complaint as an attempt to accelerate, it was an ineffective attempt to accelerate, an invalid attempt to accelerate. Thank you. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Ms. Burzen. Mr. Dumont? <coughs> uh, it's Mr. Cherhaden, Your Honor. Oh, I'm, I, 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 I apologize to Mr. Dumont and to the Court. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. This is a statutory collection action, and it may be helpful to return for a moment to the words of the statute at issue, uh, which are reprinted at page 17A of the petitioner's brief. Um, 29 U.S.C. section 1451A1 gives a cause of action to a plan fiduciary, and I'm alighting some material, a plan fiduciary who is adversely affected by the act or omission of any party under this subtitle uh, who may bring an action for appropriate legal or equitable relief. Our basic submission along with that of petitioners is quite simple. First, that the only relevant adverse effect under the subtitle, under the statute, arose not from respondents' withdrawal from the plan, uh, but from its failure to pay withdrawal liability uh, on the schedule prescribed by the statute. Why don't you take the position that uh, counsel for the petition does that the 60-day rule with respect to the first payment <coughs> uh, actually makes the, uh, the date of, of, uh, of, of, of adverse consequence the date upon which uh, it could have been demanded, uh, the date upon which it could have been collected rather than the date upon which they demanded the payment to be made? We that, that is a conceivable reading of that section of the statute. We don't think it's the best reading. We think that the... Um, statutory section is best read to give that 60 days as a, uh, a terminus before which the plan must make the payment due. But I think if you look at normal practice, from what I understand from the PBGC, and also the reported cases make this fairly clear, the normal practice uh, is for plans to set a date that is within the 60 days, but is not actually the 61st day from the date of demand. And that makes a lot of practical sense because um, what, you, what the plan often wants to do is make it the payment due on the same day that the payments normally were due, before the withdrawal, or on some day that's convenient for accounting purposes, uh, as opposed to being tied to a specific 30th or 60th day from the date of demand, which would unduly constrain either the date you want to send the notice or the date that you set the payment to be due. So we think the best if, reading if is... They, if they sued on the stated day, which was before the 61st day, would they be subject to a motion to dismiss? We believe the payment is due on the day that is specified in the schedule. So the answer they, is no? The answer is that the suit would be timely if it was before the 61st day, um, but well, after the day that the payment was due under the schedule. Well, so you're, you're saying that even though the schedule set for the date before the 61st day, uh, the suit would be timely six years after the 61st day, and that there was a failure to pay? No, the suit would have to be 
filed uh, within six years of the day specified in the, in the plan's schedule as the day the first payment was due is our position, uh, which is not the position that petitioners have taken. So you are rejecting their 60-day. And under your reading of the statute, the first, they, they sued too late to recover the f- first payment. Is that? That's correct, which is why, in our view of the way the statute is best construed, uh, it is necessary for the court to reach the question passed on by the, the Seventh Circuit, which is, was there only one cause of action, and therefore, when the first payment was missed, was there a sort of automatic acceleration back to that point, so that if you missed the first payment, you missed everything? And you think that 60-day is so clearly wrong on the petitioner's part that it shouldn't be something that we should remand to the Court of Appeals, which never considered it? I think it's perfectly within this Court's options to reject the rule that the Ninth Circuit came up with, which was running from the date of withdrawal, uh, and to leave all the other issues for, for resolution below. That would not be what we would think was the most appropriate outcome. And we think there are several questions that are fairly presented and fairly subsumed within the question, and that the Court could usefully make clear for the benefit of, uh, of the bar. But certainly it would be uh, proper for the Court merely to resolve the narrow question you suggest. This, uh, this 60-day uh, dispute, for purposes of the present case, is only relevant as to the first payment. But, but the issue, of, uh, the, the issue of, of whether the 60 days is what counts or not applies to every payment uh, set under the scheme, doesn't it? It's not just that, the first payment. That's correct. I'm sorry, which 60 days now are we talking about there? Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. As I read the statute, it says the failure of an employer to pay any overdue withdrawal liability payment, any payment, not just the first, within 60 days after the employer receives written notification from the plan sponsor that the payment is overdue. Isn't that the 60-day provision you're well, talking about? No, that, that is a different 60-day provision. Okay. Which is now, which one are you talking about here? We are talking about um, 1399 uh, C2. G- give me the, the U.S. Code site, would you? It's uh, U.S. Code is 29 U.S.C. 1399 C2, and it's on page 15A of the petition of the blue brief, um, which says that withdrawal liability is uh, page 15A. C C2. I have C2. Good. Uh, withdrawal liability is payable. This is the actually payable part uh, in accordance with the schedule set forth by the plan. Uh, beginning no later than 60 days after the date of the demand, notwithstanding any request for review or appeal. This is part of what goes into the pay now, dispute later uh, feature of the statute, which we think is quite important. Um, well, now, why, why the 60 days that I believe you were referring to yes. is uh, the 60 days that is incorporated in the definition of default, um, which is on the next page, page 16A, uh, really carrying over from 15A, that... Uh, Default means failure of an employer to make when due any payment if the failure is not cured within 60 days. And our submission there, which is fairly important, is that uh, that default, the definition of default is relevant for only one thing, and that is whether or not the plan is entitled under the statute to accelerate uh, the entire remaining unpaid liability. Um, and that is quite different from the question of whether a particular payment or set of payments are overdue. You're saying it is a, it is a default, but not a default within the, the meaning of the provision of the Act that allows acceleration. Uh, right. A, a, a missing of the first payment, yes, right. is exactly right. It's, a, it's an overdue it's a delinquency yeah. rather than default. 
Um, May I just inquire to be sure I understand what you're saying? The provision on page 15A, the C2 provision, that 60 days, in your view, merely sets an outer limit on on the time on, on when the when the payment can become due. Is that my statement? When the when the when the uh, plan may may request payment. It must fix a date within that 60-day period. The one on 15A in yeah. C2. Um, that's right. It, it only our, our position is it's for the protection of the beneficiaries, uh-huh. essentially. It allows the plan some flexibility in setting the beginning of the schedule, but it sets an outer limit past which they may not go. They must make the first payment due within that first 60 days. So it's really not for the protection of employers at all. It's for the protection of the beneficiaries. Um, really, in, in, in some, we have only four points to make. First, that... Accrual, as is the general rule everywhere, follows the right to sue. And here the right to sue uh, under the statute arises not from withdrawal, as the Ninth Circuit held, but from the failure to make a statutory uh, payment when due under the statute. And that's the only thing the plan could ever have sued for, and it's all they sued for here. Um, The further consequences of that, uh, we think, follow from a routine application of of principles, of general principles of law uh, under the statutes of limitations, uh, and, and acceleration law. Uh, and all these rules, I think, importantly, work together to, f- to support Congress's fundamental purpose here in this entire scheme, which is f- to protect beneficiaries of these plans um, by strengthening and stabilizing the multi-employer pension uh, plan system uh, by ensuring, to the extent possible, a steady flow of even payments on which the plan can uh, count and with full provision for protecting the employer uh, after an arbitration and after any determination of defenses on the merits uh, by making a refund available. But all we are talking about here is interim payments while a dispute on the merits goes forward. The statute makes quite clear that those are due and payable now, and this action is timely to collect them. Is there an argument that the suit on the merits shouldn't go forward because an arbitration request demand had been made and not responded to. How does that play into this? When I speak of uh, dispute on the merits, I, I refer to dispute before the arbitrator. It is true that in the complaint, as a response to the complaint in this case, uh, the employer raised an affirmative defense that there had been a, a failure to respond to the request for arbitration. We think that is not well taken, but certainly the court on, on remand could consider that. We think the right result would be for it to go to arbitration and have all of the uh, employer's objections to any particulars of the assessment here uh, handled in arbitration between the parties. If, uh, one minor question. I'm thinking of the first payment. Oh, well, forget it. I'll ask you. I'll ask. Thank you, Mr. Dumont. Uh, Mr. Terhaden. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Under petitioner's interpretation of the statute of limitations in this case, the trust fund would have absolute and final control over the commencement of the statute of limitations, over the running of the statute of limitations. Moreover, under their theory, they would, in effect, ask the court to extend what is now a minimum six-year statute of limitations to some 26-plus years. We submit that Congress could not and did not intend such a result. We believe that, Your Honors, that the plain words of the statute. But the, the, the extension the to 26 years would be only for the last $350. No, I think what they're saying, that there are these individual statutes of limitations for each monthly right. payment, which would allow them to, if they wanted to wait till year 18 and sue for six years prior to that, they could do. 
Well, they pretty well conceded that if they, that we don't read the statute that one way, they lose the first payment. I don't know why they wouldn't lose 59 payments if they waited another uh, appropriate number of 59 months. Well, I think that's one of the, you know, the, the fundamental issue here, one of the fundamental issues is can they divide this up into separate statutes right. of limitations, or if they miss and that first payment. And if they can, is it one of them, then your 26-year statute of limitations applies to only $350, not to the entire amount. I suppose that's one way of... Well, how is that? I mean, I thought it was, I have a 30-year mortgage, all right? And if I miss the 358th payment, which I guess would be in the year 2020, if I'm around, uh, 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 then I guess they could sue for that. And what they're saying is your interpretation would mean they're free to pay it or not. I mean, the bank would, I think, I don't think the bank would be very happy if I took that view. Is that not going to pay you the 358th payment? Sue me. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations began to run when I took out the mortgage. I mean, what kind of a law would that be? And why would Congress, why would Congress want such a law? Well, I don't think this is, can be really analogized to a, a mortgage, mortgage situation, a loan mortgage situation. I think here the question is the, there's this underlying debt, this basic fundamental debt, and it really is just one debt one claim, and I don't think it can be broken up into a series of, of little claims, of small, of small claims. You could say the same thing about a, a mortgage securing a loan. That is, you know, you borrow $50,000 and the lender puts up $50,000, but your duty to repay is not to repay $50,000 in any lump sum, but to pay so much each month re representing principal and interest. Yeah. That, that's correct, but here when you have the one fundamental underlying debt and is supposed to be paid on a certain period of time, whether it be a lump sum or the commencement of these, of these in the alternative, the commencement of these monthly payments, when nothing is done, when nothing is paid within that time established under the law, under 1399 uh, C2, I think there is no more opportunity to uh, say, well, we really have a series of, of of debts after that that we can collect on. Are, are you saying that the statute begins to run at the time of withdrawal? That's what we're saying. That's our, our fundamental point. That is our fundamental uh, position. That's, that's true. On so the whole thing. So it has the result and effect of accelerating the entire debt, even though there are provisions in the statute that expressly say it won't be accelerated unless this plan sponsor takes certain action. Well, which they did in this case. They accelerated in this case. They, they gave the, the notice, and then in the lawsuit is when the acceleration took place. So the consequence, I take it, of what you're saying uh, is, uh, going back to Justice Breyer's question, uh, that if they, they pay all their installments for six years, and the seventh year comes and they stop paying, um, there's, there's no possible collection no. action. That was a point that petitioners brought up, and it's a very, it's a very good point. In that situation... They have effectively agreed to the whole payment process. It's just like a contract. There's a contract obligation. This is what the Seventh Circuit has said and the Ninth Circuit has said. They've given their assent to this whole process. And in that, in that situation... Oh, so we have a whole you, new you have, agreement. You have a whole new agreement in that, in that particular situation. Well, that question, I don't think it would make sense. In, in, in what, what particular situation? In what particular situation? In, in the situation where they've, they've made some payments. They've made payments. In that situation, they have given their assent to, to, this, to this payment process. A new contract, a new contract has effectively been created, and then they can sue in that situation. Then it becomes like a regular mortgage. A regular contract. You can sue payment by payment. Correct. 
So this case, then, all you're saying is there's a special rule when you miss your first payment. Anybody who misses the first payment's out of luck, and it's it, for everybody. Yeah, everybody if, who if, makes if, the first payment, it's, it, that you agree. If you with. haven't, if you haven't right. made any payments whatsoever, then they have they have six years uh, to do something. Mm. All right. Out of curiosity and respect to that first payment, I take it that you and the Solicitor General are reading C2. There has to be a cause of action. I take everybody agrees you get six years from when the cause of action arises. And the question is, when does it arise? And C2 begins by saying, withdrawal liability shall be payable in accordance with the schedule set forth by the sponsor. But the schedule can't extend it beyond 60 days. All right? So then I looked at the schedule. And the schedule seems to say on page 24 that they have a choice. They can either have a schedule of payments, in which case the first one is due on February 1, or they could pay the whole thing in a lump sum 60 days thereafter, which I take it would be February 10. Is that right? No, I would take it would be February 1st. It says you may pay the withdrawal liability set forth in the preceding paragraph, that's 40,000 some odd dollars, by a single lump sum payment within 60 days after your receipt of this letter. And they, but they gave us the schedule here. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. They said you may either do it. I, I, yeah. You don't know what my question is. I just want to be sure the factual premise is right. The factual premise is that they told you that you could either do it in a lump sum 60 days after, which would be February. It doesn't say you may. I, I, in, in their letter to us, they say you, you have until February 1, because they, they track. Well, but I think they maybe track I'm not reading the right letter. My, my letter has a paragraph on page 24. You may pay in a lump sum within 60 days. Then the next paragraph, the Act also permits a schedule, in which case the first payment is due by February 1. Am I reading the right thing? If, that, if that's the December 12, 1986. Uh, it's page 24. Now, if I'm reading the right thing, then I imagine it's now February 8. I wondered how there could be a cause of action on February 8, since the trustee would not yet know which had been chosen. If the trustee did not know which had been chosen, how would there be a cause of action yet, since they have till February 10th to make the election? And if there is no cause of action on February 8th, then how can it be that the statute starts to run? That was my question. Okay, and we're, we're assuming that it doesn't run from the time of withdrawal in this situation. No, no, I will not make any assumption. I'm saying, I read you the two paragraphs, and I said that um, I am assuming that they say you have to February 10th to make the election. If that's so, it sounds as if on February 8th, there was no cause of action yet, because they had till February 10th. Now, I'm putting it as a question. I'm not making a statement. I want to know what your response to that problem is. You can say it isn't a problem and explain why, whatever you'd like. I, I guess we did view the letter as requiring either or by uh, February 1 and not uh, February 10, in which case it would, it would, be, uh, would have been late. The Court of Appeals also has my reading of it on page 2A. It says it could either make a lump sum payment 60 days or it could begin installment payments on February 1. But if that's the correct reading, then is that the end of this matter? Then... then uh, I don't know if that's if it's I don't know if it's the end end of this matter because we still have the ancillary question of whether it started at the, at the time of withdrawal, which would set it all all back at a time earlier. Uh, Unless we say withdrawal end, if that's right, then 
they can get the first payment and everything, in your view, if we reject your argument as to the withdrawal. Well, I guess I guess I do I guess I do view it as as running, uh, Your Honor, with one and the same time, February one, uh, and that the time of the first that the option was the time of the. Uh, February 1 in time when the payment schedules could begin or as an option, because it's an option here. Congress has given them an option to do one or the other, and so I view those options as coming into, into place at one and the same time. And so if the schedule of monthly payments was to begin uh, on February 1, then since those options run at one and the same time, uh, we view the uh, time for the lump sum payment also to have begun on February 1. Well, what is your theory, uh, Mr. Terhaden, as to why the statute of limitations should begin running from the date of withdrawal? Our theory there, Your Honor, is that Congress has spoken in Section 1451A. We, we, we hunted around. Could there be anything which says it only starts, any statutory provision that only starts at the time of the first mispayment? We couldn't find anything. But Section 1451 says that a fiduciary, in this case a trust fund, could bring a lawsuit, may maintain an action if it has been adversely affected by an act or omission of another party. May Congress has said that, and may, it may bring an action. Now, at the time a company, an employer, withdraws, the trust fund at that time is adversely affected. The contributions are no longer flowing in. But there is a substitute that the statute provides, this payment out of the series of payments, isn't there? Well, Isn't that a that's, compensation? That's, no, that's an option. Again, that's an option. It's, it's not, it's, I, know, I know Petitioner has uh, fix, fixated, fixed in on the, on the payment, but I think that's an option. It's one or the other. Well, what would the suit say if the suit were filed the day after the withdrawal? In the unlikely event that it was, it was filed the day after uh, the, the withdrawal, uh, they would be asking under 1451A uh, for the... For the for the amount to come from the court, I, th I think it would be one in an amount to be pr of damages to be proved at trial. That's what it would say. So what is the wrong? And two, I think at that point in time, it's not so much the a wrong. What has happened then is Congress has said at the time in 1381A, at the time, employer, you withdraw, you are liable to the trust fund. It's an instantaneous thing. Are I you saying then you could you can have a claim for relief? That's unripe. I mean, do, do you agree that at the point when withdrawal liability kicks in, the employer has done nothing wrong? There's no wrong until there's a payment due that has not been paid. I don't think it's, of course not, there's not a wrong. It's not illegal to withdraw. So what's but, the but, claim but, but for relief for when all that's been done is something that the statute doesn't say is unlawful? The court has said there's a cause and effect, the court and, and the Congress has said there's a cause-effect relationship. It, and they're always speaking in the present tense. When you withdraw, you are liable to the trust fund, and the, and the court in the gray case and the, and the concrete pipe but case. But liable for what? It, you, you have this obligation to pay your fair share but of you the don't know what it is. benefits. But you don't know what, what the obligation is until the plan sends out the notice. But, but Congress did something... 
in this case, very, very wise. It said, you may, you may sue. You've been adversely affected. But it also, at the but same time, says you had to sue in six years. I, I was struck by what you said, and I looked at this section, 1451A, on page 17A, and it says, persons inside, entitled to maintain actions. I said, yeah, I recognize that. That answers who. And then I look, I find out, a plan fiduciary, etc. That's typical of statutory. There, there's a who question and a when question. And you were referring us to the who question to answer the when question. But I think 1451F says it accrues, uh, talks about when the cause of action arises. This is the one section which says uh, when, it, when it arises. When you read that in conjunction with uh, 1381A and listening Where to Where does it say anything about when it arises? It says, it says persons entitled to maintain an action. And it says if you've been adversely affected. I think that is, is crucial here. A fund has been, has been harmed. It's been hurt at this time. It says when you are adversely affected, you are the people who can sue. These are the people who can sue. Uh, why isn't it this just such a familiar who may sue, like standing? Who has standing to sue? Not when you begin your action. Well, I, I think it's, it's the one possible definitional section in, in the statute which explains when the cause of action arises. And if this cause of action arises, the time, it's almost a traditional way that a cause of action can arise when, when someone is harmed. In this case, the trust fund is harmed or adversely affected at this point in time. But that's not necessarily true. Supposing you paid the full amount of the withdrawal liability, you would have paid for all the unfunded uh, liability and your share of the unfunded liability. No. The, the withdrawal yeah, doesn't necessarily harm the plan. I, I think as no more, no more contributions are, are coming in. No, but if you, that, if you promptly paid point. the assessment, there would be no harmful consequence to the plan from the withdrawal. Well, I, I think the minute that there's, there's a, there, I think the minute there's a stopping of this flow of contributions, these unfunded vested benefits are just going to get worse. Part of the contributions go to reduce the unfunded uh, vested benefits. Well, is that true 100% of the time? Does every employer who withdraws always have to pay uh, an additional amount? No, not, not every time. Congress... No, because sometimes the fund is adequate. Is adequate. Sometimes, it's, sometimes the fund is adequate for the, for, to, to pay the benefits. That's true. That's true. Even, I think even if a, a fund is fully funded, it is still harmed because these contributions are no longer coming in to fund these the, funded, the, funded benefits. The, the, but the, so, if there's any an analogy to contract, well, it seems to me the most you can say about the world, it's like an anticipatory breach saying that in the future I'm not going to do something that I'm obligated. And for an anticipatory breach, that's at the election of the payee. They can exercise it or not. Isn't, isn't that true? In, in, in contract situations. But again, here I don't believe that there is a contract situation as the 7th and 9th. Well, what is it then? I, I, because uh, when I read the petitioner's brief, I said, well, the closest analogy is a contract, and so that's a lot of merit to her argument. But I looked at your brief to see what is the analogous cause of action, the analogous type of wrong that you assert, and I, I couldn't find it. Well, it I mean, what is, 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 is it some kind of breach of fiduciary duty or something like that? I, no, that, that doesn't work. I, th I think it's, it's Congress saying this is, this is your right trustees of trust funds, this is, and you may sue to perfect that right, and you have six years to do it. That's, that's a very long time. And during this six years, you have to make the calculation and the demand, something that is very easy to do. 
very, very simple to, to Except do. that a contract somehow springs into existence if the withdrawing employer makes the first payment. Makes, makes that. That's, that's, what the, that's precisely what the Seventh Circuit said and the Ninth Circuit here in the, in the case below. They have given their assent to this process. They have agreed that they can be, that this sum can be paid over a period of time. They have agreed that a suit may be brought at later state points in time. But until that happens, uh, there, is no, there is no mutual agreement, as you would have in an ordinary contract. Is, is this implied in fact or implied in law? I mean, did, did you really, is this supposed to be an estimation of what was genuinely in the mind of whoever made the first payment? Implied in, I, well, I suppose, the Ninth Circuit. I mean, you could say, you could say that, you could say, you know, by doing this, you have agreed to, but, but is it true? That's true. I mean, it, have they agreed to it because you say so, or have they agreed to it because somehow the making of the payment the making of the represents in, some, uh, some contractual undertaking? It is. That is an implied agreement with, with this process. It's, I think the Ninth Circuit looked at, looked at Corbin and they said the act of paying can be an implied uh, agreement with the, in this case, with the process. All right, so so that, that's, how the, that's how the contract impliedly uh, arises. So either they do, on your theory, I'm just interested in your theory. On your theory, they agree to the schedule of payments or they don't. Correct. Okay. Now you're saying if they do, then fine. Then we have the bank collecting the mortgage. But if they don't, now then what? That's what I want to know. Imagine they don't. They're never going to agree to this, this condition of all the payments. They're always never going to agree to it. Very well. Then on that theory, why isn't it the case that they withdraw, then they get a notice, then they have 60 days from that time, since they're never going to agree to the schedule, and then they can bring their lawsuit. And on that theory, it would still be timely. It would have been until February 10th they would have had. I, I so how does your theory work on, on, on that branch of your... Yeah. On that, I, I, you know, I can well, well understand somebody, someone saying the employer hasn't absolutely refused yet. I suppose... Unfortunately, the alternative to that, Mr. Justice uh, Breyer, is that it leaves it entirely up into the hands of the petitioner to start this process. Well, yeah, just as, for it example, just, if I, I mean, make it, an could, odd... Ne- you could never have a statute of limitations. Well, it, it's rather like the bank. Let's say we get into an odd agreement. I grant you this to be a little odd, but I don't have to make my first mortgage payment until the bank requests it. Well, I guess that would be up to them. You're right. The thing would never come to rest as long as they didn't ask me to make my first payment. However, they might see a problem with that. I mean, they might ask. I guess the trustee's in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, I th- or a demand promissory note. There's no due date. And so whenever the holder of the note says, okay, I want payment now in 60 days, that triggers the running of the statute. It's not a concept unknown in our legal st- system. Again, I don't want to beat this point on the ground. Again, that would be a, a contract situation which we don't have here. Well, I, I actually I think, think a demand note runs from the time the time it's made, but the, but there are a number of, not a number, but there are some instances where there's a continuing wrong and the statute of limitations is in effect uh, in, in in the hands of the plaintiff because uh, the plaintiff demands that you cease the cease the wrong and can sue from that point. I don't think this is, is a continuing uh, obligation situation this petitioner has submitted and well I was trying to think of an instance in in, in yeah. which the the statute of limitations is, is really in the hands of the plaintiff and that that's what I came up with 
I think here, Congress, this, this whole law was enacted at a time of crisis for, for, for trust funds. Employers were bailing left and right. And so Congress, I think, really wanted to see that these funds move as swiftly as possible. Under, under our view, under our theory of, of the case, we're putting some teeth into Congress's exhortation to say act as, as soon as practicable to go ahead and collect this. We're putting well, some, some teeth But the very idea of a six-year statute of limitations suggests that they did not regard it as terribly urgent. I mean, we have six-month statutes of limitations. Six years suggested that they were willing to have people it, take Six them. years in which they have to file suit. Here we have almost eight years before the suit was filed. But on their view, they had nothing to sue for because there was nothing, no wrong was done, no obligation was incurred until there was a payment schedule. That's true. There was, in our view, there is no obligation that, uh, there's an oblig underlying obligation, but not an obligation to pay pursuant to a payment schedule. There are, are there other examples where a statute of limitations starts to run before the claim ripens, at a point where we don't know whether there's going to be any claim? I think, I think, you know, I, I can't think of one uh, precisely, but in this situation, as you know, we say the claim has, has ripened, but I think... But it hasn't because you would, you, I thought you conceded that if the complaint were to be filed the day after the withdrawal, the permanent withdrawal occurred, there would be no relief possible because the employer hasn't done anything to be obligated to pay anything. But I, I think, you know, if this was, if they were, if we were the last of the, of the six years, the last day of the, of the sixth year, and trust fund hadn't done anything, I think certainly it, it could. But we're talking about when the claim accrued, not the last day of the six years. We're talking about the starting gun. Yeah. And and I I don't know of a situation where the starting gun goes off before you have a claim, before you have a right claim. In the, this is before the runners know in which direction to run, so to speak. <laughs> I understand. I, this is what happened in the, in the Joyce case, which one of the main cases petitioner relies on. Uh, the trust fund sent out the demand on the very same day they, they filed a lawsuit. And the issue, the issue was brought up there, was this premature or not? And, and the reason the trust fund said the reason we did it is because we weren't sure when the statute of limitations ran, but we better make sure we protect our rights. And I think that's what the fund would have to do here. It, it, it could file the suit to protect and they, it. And then Joyce gave them an answer, right? And when the answer was the claim doesn't accrue until the first payment is due. I mean, the, until there's a pay, payment is due. But by then it was no, yeah, and then it was no longer... Uh, premature. I think. I think here they could they could file the suit in the, in the court. Give, I'm not following your example of Joyce because Joyce was presented, as you say, in a climate where the law was uncertain. So, but there was a determination of the payments that were due. The schedule was out, right? Yeah, but, the, but the employer hadn't refused at that point at the time they filed suit, and they were able to stay in, into court because by the time it came up through the court, the district court system, they, there was no payment by the, uh, the employer. So they were legitimately able to, to file their lawsuit the same day they, so, they sent the payment. But there was a claim by the employers, on the employer's part, that that claim was untimely, right, in Joyce? Because it wasn't within six years from when the withdrawal liability, from when the withdrawal occurred. That, that's, that's true. 
they were saying, I think there the employer said it, as we do here, it, it adhered back to the, uh, the time of uh, the actual withdrawal. But I think my point there is there's nothing to, to, to really to stop them to, to meet this long six-year statute of limitation where nothing has been done, where no, where, to meet this statute of limitation, where they haven't done anything to protect their rights and the court could very easily uh, stay the action. They could very easily, otherwise, I'm afraid it's just going to go further and further in, into the future. They could, if they, they'd come back and if nothing's done in eight years or in, in ten years. you're saying there's nothing that impels the trustee, the plan trustees, to, to do this faster? I mean, they are losing at least interest, they? said, they? you know, that's true. We're losing, they're losing some, some interest. They say perhaps a suit for breach of fiduciary obligation could be brought against the the trustees, but our view, Your Honor, gives it some some teeth. It, it, it says there's a there's a, a penalty here if you don't do anything here in in six years, you will incur a penalty. And and look what happens when it goes on beyond the six years when nothing is done. It's what happened in this well, case. Well, not the penalty. You say there's no liability at all because it's time barred. Yeah, but it's that's not right. Like that's what they, they would they would they would lose it all. Uh, you're wrong. They would lose it all. And, and here, if this keeps going beyond the, the six years, what you have in this case, by this time you have an insolvent trust fund and a, and a defunct employer because it's, it's gone on so long. The delay during this suit. period is all to the advantage of the person who is obligated to pay. I mean, there's an incentive on the part of the trust that the trustees are doing their job. They'll get moving. But the longer they take, the better off you are. You get an interest-free loan for this whole period of time. What, but... I think policy-wise, the longer it goes on, the employers could move, the employers could go out of business, the employers sure. could become defunct. The employers and, may, and, may be able to escape the liability, but that's but certainly that, not anything they should be complaining about. No, but that, but that certainly doesn't serve the purposes of the Act, serve the purposes of the uh, beneficiaries, I don't, I don't believe, if that, if that happens. If, oh. if there's nothing that actually compels them to do it. Well, they have a duty to act as soon as practical or whatever the statute That's says. true, as, as soon as practical. And, and I have some pause with that, with that exhortation by Congress to act as There's soon as practical. It's sort of a strange way to penalize them to say that if you don't act promptly, we'll let the, employee, let the contributor off the hook. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I, I think, I think it, it, it really compels them to, to move forward and, and do something. I think it really uh, gives them some, some real definitive... Uh, ob objective uh, hammer, if you will, to, that they better that they better act now, uh, especially in a situation where there's been nothing nothing done. I understand it's different in a in a in a scheduled payment situation where there has been something done. There's been an effort, and that's why that's why in those situations certainly it can uh, it can go on for a uh, for a longer period. There's uh, no further questions. I'm, I'll yield out, back the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Terhaden. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Burson, you have three minutes remaining. I'd like to address uh, two things. First, um, it's important to be clear uh, that, and I think it is clear, that this is a statutory obligation. Uh, that is, the, pay the 
schedule is a statutory obligation. And the employer, uh, while it has the option to prepay under um, 1399C4, doesn't have the option to not pay uh, and say that it has chosen a total payment option, but it isn't doing it. The statute isn't set up that way. The statute is set up with a baseline obligation to pay on a scheduled uh, periodic payment basis. Um, and the only way that the employer doesn't have to meet that payment by payment obligation is if it prepays the entire amount. This employer has not prepaid the entire amount, uh, and therefore it had uh, a prepay, a payment by payment obligation which was not contractual, to, which should not depend upon it making the first payment at all, but which went into effect uh, with the demand letter and stayed there for the entire period uh, that the payments were due. Um, that's the first point. The second point, is, uh, which is related, uh, is to respond to uh, Justice Breyer's um, dealing with this case in particular. Um, and I would agree with perhaps um, a slight uh, twist in, in the explanation. Uh, on page 24 of the Joint Appendix, um, the demand letter does indeed say uh, that uh, $45,570 uh, can be paid uh, within 60 days after the receipt of this letter. Uh, which was actually probably sometime after February 10th would have been due, uh, and then says that there is an option to make um, a payment-by-payment uh, payment, um, installment uh, instead. Uh, if, in fact, um, for all the reasons we stated, um, it is the payment-by-payment payment obligation, which is the statutory obligation, and uh, absence a permissive acceleration by the fund at a time when it can make the acceleration, which it couldn't here, uh, that's the only obligation. But if somehow one thought uh, that there was another obligation, i.e. a lump sum payment, we know when that one was due, and it wasn't due within the limitations period. So there's no way to take No, but failure. according to the letter, it would have been due before. They gave them, you gave them up to February 10, 60 days from December 12. It was actually 60 days from when they received the letter, so it would have been a little after that. Well, but uh, in any event, you gave them beyond February 1st. Exactly. So that the, under his reading and my reading of that paragraph, you lose the first payment. Um, I, I, because they had no obligation to do anything because they had an payment. option to pay in full on February 8th. That's because that's what you asked for. On February 8th, they didn't have an obligation to pay in full. They, they only an had an obligation to They had an option. Full. They had an option because you demanded payment in full within 60 days, or if you don't do it, you can pay monthly. That's correct, but on, so on February, February 8th, 8th, we don't know whether they're going to pay right. in full. On so you could not have sued. Thank you, Ms. Burson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Wednesday, November 12th at 10 o'clock.